Please welcome to our weekly podcast show. The show is created based on chapters from Coventry to Hollywood, narrated by Marie Rowe. Marie Rowe has been an amazing supporter and a contributor to Sophia's Style magazine from the very start. Her real-life stories have been a great addition to each issue of our magazine. We are on chapter 19 now and it seems like we have only just begun. Marie has kindly agreed to bring her chapters to life on our radio show. We have decided to create a podcast show dedicated especially to her incredible life stories. I would love for you to join our show from Coventry to Hollywood every Sunday from 8pm and you can listen to us on our app or a live stream. So I would like to welcome you all to our newer show and I hope you tune in every Sunday from 8 This is Marie Rowe. Since Anne Pendlebury established her wonderful magazine, Sophia Style, in January 2018, I've been contributing by writing chapters of my life journey entitled From Coventry to Hollywood. If you've been following my story, I hope you've enjoyed reading about my escapades and perhaps been inspired by the lessons I've learned along the way. It's now my pleasure to share more of my stories in a regular weekly slot on Sophia Style Radio. So, here goes. Working in the Hollywood film industry has given me an opportunity to experience the lives of others beyond the story being told in the film. And of course, to meet and work with the top A-list actors, all of whom you would know. People always want the juicy details of what it's really like in Hollywood, but I'm not here to name drop. Well, you know, I might drop a couple later. <laughs> Whether you want to seek fame and fortune in Hollywood or want to do something else that sets your soul on fire, it's your unique journey. It may also take a while to realise, but be patient, trust in the process of life, and don't be afraid to live spontaneously. Take risks. I really never knew where my life journey would take me, which I believe is true of most children. Kids live in the moment, and, you know, they're not necessarily concerned with their future until they leave school. Sometimes they might follow a route that seems an obvious choice at a young age, but then later, perhaps at the dismay of their parents, they choose to go in another direction. They take the road less travelled, the risky one. However, because of necessity, so many people are working in jobs that they don't particularly like. They have financial responsibilities. They need to take care of their family. They pay the bills. But it's never too late to realise our human potential and the possibilities that are available to us in life. I was at a secondary modern school in Coventry learning Pittman shorthand. Well, what's that, you might ask? It's kind of a dead language. Anyway, in the old days, for me anyway, it was either learning this new way of communicating or studying domestic science, a fancy name for cooking and cleaning. I thought, 
well, anyone can cook and clean, but to be able to learn a secret language and make a living as a secretary seemed a lot more attractive. Consequently, when I left school at 15, I had a skill which would eventually open doors for me in Hollywood. Of course, that was absolutely not in my consciousness at the time, although I did enjoy acting and I was always in the school plays. My wonderful English teacher, Mr. Wildsmith, seemed to be impressed by my understanding and interpretation of Shakespeare's language, so encouraged me to take elocution lessons when I was 13. He sent me to see Miss Simpson at Bell Green Community Centre, where I spent every Saturday morning learning how to speak proper English. Miss Simpson was very la-dee-da and soon whipped me into shape. Naturally, I had to drop my new and improved accent when I was at school for fear of being mocked. I was entered into English speaking exams by Miss Simpson that were held by the Royal Academy of Speech and Drama, and I did quite well. I also joined the local drama group, the Bell Orchard Players, when I was 15. Now, since I grew up in an era where little girls should be seen and not heard, acting, it gave me a voice. I loved playing different characters and being applauded for my performances. I was finally getting the acknowledgement I had looked for within my family, but which was sadly missing. I heard a quote which was supposed to have come from Sir Laurence Olivier that actors were rather dysfunctional because they were only happy being someone else. Well, that was certainly true for me. When I was 16, I was offered a scholarship to RADA, but my mother wouldn't let me accept it. I was too young, London was the big bad city, and what's the point, she said. After all, you'll soon be getting married having babies and scrubbing floors. <laughs> That's how she put it. And it wasn't a future that uh, exactly appealed to me, to be honest. <laughs> so it was secretarial work for me, while confining my acting to part-time drama college and amateur dramatics. That's where I met my husband, a fellow thespian. In those days, if you weren't married by the age of 21, you were definitely on the shelf and close to becoming an old maid. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? It's so stupid. I was 23, so alarm bells were ringing and people were saying, oh, you're going to get married. When are you going to get married and have babies? Although I did marry my husband for love, I didn't enjoy having to support him while he went full-time to the local drama college. He was living the life I wanted, but I thought it was important that he fulfilled his dream and that it was my place to be the good little wife. I worked full-time as a legal secretary and spent several nights pulling pints behind the bar in the disco at the Baggington Oak, which was managed by my aunt and uncle. So that was quite convenient. It was the late 60s and the music was great. The Beatles, Rolling Stones, it was fantastic. Also, since this was the first discotheque in Coventry, it was very popular and always busy. It was a lot of fun. And I felt as if I was going to a party every time I worked there. I also helped with catering and was a waitress at wedding receptions held at the pub on weekends. 
It was really not a hardship at all, except that when my husband picked me up from the pub and told me what he did at drama college that day, I was frankly envious. To be honest, I wasn't really happy in my marriage. I was lonely. Since neither of us wanted children, I was wondering what my life was all about. In an attempt to shake things up, I decided to quit secretarial work and enrolled in a beauty therapy course. The training was in Northampton and I travelled there from Coventry every day for three months to learn all aspects of beauty therapy. There were facials, massage, manicures. However, the main focus of the business and the money maker was electrolysis, the removal of superfluous hair. And I learned how to extricate the root of individual hair follicles by sticking electric needles into the hairy legs of Miss Frida Irons, the lady who ran the salon. She was very patient and seemed quite immune to the tingling shock of the electric current. Or maybe she secretly liked it. <laughs> Actually, I didn't find electrolysis at all satisfying even though I was able to temporarily remove facial hair from clients, I saw how troubled these women were. Most came weekly for treatment because they didn't want their husbands to know they had facial hair. Amazing. Anyway, they were in distress, and as far as I was concerned, this treatment should have been available on the NHS. It was a psychological problem, and women shouldn't have to pay for it. I mentioned this to Miss Irons, who naturally didn't appreciate my way of thinking. This was the beginning of the end of my beauty therapy career, as you can imagine. As it happens, I also brought, it also brought the demise of my marriage and almost my own demise. Since I was no longer able to financially support my husband, it created great stress between us in desperation, I swallowed a bottle of codeine pills, but was unsuccessful in ending my life or getting the attention I desperately needed from my husband. So now I'm at a crossroads. What to do next? Incredible life stories from Coventry to Hollywood by Marie Rowe. encouraged Dr. Bond, as Pat and I tentatively sipped our champagne cocktails. I suppose you're thinking, oh my God, what was in those cocktails? Had we been slipped a sedative and were more creepy men going to jump out and take advantage of us? Well, even though those thoughts didn't actually cross our minds at the time, we were nonetheless wary of Dr. Bond's intentions. Let me show you around he announced. Well, it certainly was a beautiful apartment, extravagantly furnished and filled with expensive looking art pieces. I have five bedrooms, so you can have one each. Pat and I had already decided that we'd stick together as much as possible because we simply didn't trust the good doctor. When I told him that we would share one of the bedrooms, he was absolutely astonished and just couldn't believe that we didn't want to wallow in the luxury of our own feather bed. I hope you change your mind, he said, as we settled into the white bedroom. Yes, 
everything was pure white as the driven snow, flakes of which could be seen falling outside the window and shining like crystals against the dark sky. I'm sure you gals would love a sauna after your long journey. He handed us two thick, cosy bathrobes. Get undressed and I'll show you where it is. As Pat and I pulled out our swimming costumes from our backpacks, Dr Bond said, Oh no, gals, you won't need those. Just your robes will do. Pat and I exchanged questioning looks as we closed the bedroom door, took off our clothes and donned the bathrobes. We followed Stanley into the elevator and within a few seconds arrived at the spa on the lower level. Dr Bond pointed out the huge Olympic-sized swimming pool and then led us into the empty sauna room. I suppose, quite naively really, and because we were unfamiliar with saunas, Pat and I thought there would be separate saunas for men and women. But that wasn't quite the case. Bond took off his robe and flopped down ungraciously onto the sauna bench like a big walrus, revealing more ugly flesh than we ever wanted to see. Come on, girls, don't be shy. He tapped the bench and beckoned for us to sit next to him. No thanks, I said. <laughs> there was absolutely no way either of us were going to shed our bathrobes, so we just stood there in the hot sauna not knowing quite what to do. Bond then got up abruptly, moved past us to the other side of the sauna and plunged into a barrel full of cold water. Ooh, this is the best part. You gals don't know what you're missing. Yeah, <laughs> I think we do. We walked out of the sauna and waited for the performing seal to take us back to his apartment. Once there, he immediately shed his robe and we were again exposed to his naked body. He felt more comfortable without clothes, he informed us, and had only worn shorts to greet us in case we thought he was a pervert. <laughs> Very funny. We declined his offer of a nightcap since we weren't exactly sure what that would mean and quickly ran up to our bedroom on the second floor. Thankful there was a lock on the door, we breathed sighs of relief as we put on our pyjamas and fell into the huge, extremely comfortable feather bed. Then the door handle rattled, and when it didn't open, Dr Bond knocked on the door. I just want to come in and say good night to you girls. Good night, we both said in unison, looks of horror on our faces. But he didn't go away, and just kept knocking and pleading for us to open the door and let him in so that he could say good night properly. We didn't say a word, and eventually... He got the message. Not sure what to expect the next morning, we tentatively left our bedroom together and slipped into the bathroom next door. Neither of us wanted to be separated from one another because we had no idea what the good doctor had up his sleeve, if indeed he was wearing such a garment. <laughs> 
we heard him calling to us from the kitchen. Glad you're up. Come and have breakfast. I have a few chores for you girls. We were hesitant to enter the kitchen, fearing that we would have to see Stanley in his birthday suit, which definitely would have put us off our croissants. However, he was fully clothed in ski gear. He wanted us to buy a few bits of food, as he put it, and make a little dinner for three young ladies he would be entertaining that evening. You're going to be working together, so it'd be good for you to meet. Um, what exactly will the work be? I dared to ask. Oh, we're all going to be in Paris. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. And the work? Pat asked. It's a study on sexuality through the ages, was the response. Yeah, that sounds about right, I thought. He dropped a few francs on the table together with the elevator key. That should cover the food. Have a beautiful day. And then he left. There was no doubt that the sooner Pat and I got out of there, the better. But the problem was, we didn't have any money. We contemplated taking the francs he'd given us for the food, but it hardly covered the cost of a few basic items of food, let alone train fare. And besides which, we had no idea where to go next. The three young ladies were gorgeous and quite elegant. I think they were all in their early twenties. One was a blonde, blue-eyed Brit and apparently from aristocracy. Another was French, her dark hair cut into a Mary Quant style. And the third, a German, had glorious curly red locks and penetrating green eyes. She looked more Irish, actually. But I'm not kidding, they were, they were beautiful. And you'd swear they were top models. Pat and I really did feel like the hired help as we served a very meagre dinner, which didn't seem to interest them anyway. They certainly drank a lot of wine and fawned over Dr Bond, which pleased him no end. Pat and I were in shock. We just didn't get it. Not only was he physically undesirable, to us at least, he also had a terrible case of halitosis. As they chatted away, alternating in French, German and English, it was clear that we didn't belong. But we'd already made that decision. After a couple of hours, the trio left with Dr Bond, heading for a disco. We were invited, but chose to decline, as we needed to figure out our next move. We were awoken by Dr Bond knocking on our bedroom door around 9am the next morning. Wakey, wakey, I'm going skiing again, girls. Why don't you join me for lunch? Just take the bus outside. It'll drop you at the restaurant. See you there at 1pm. Toodaloo! We heard the whirring sound of the elevator leaving and could breathe again. Oh, I think I'll go for a swim. I said. Okay, I'll, I'll join you a bit later, Pat said as she snuggled back into the covers. I'd been in the pool for almost an hour and Pat hadn't shown up, so I decided to go back to the apartment. I didn't see her there in the apartment, so I went up to the bedroom. The door was locked. Pat, are you okay? 
A few seconds later, she appeared at the door, the colour of her face blending in perfectly with the white bedroom. Oh my God, what happened? It was him, Marie. It was horrible. I was in the bathroom. I had the door open. I saw him in the mirror. He grabbed me. I got away, but he chased me up and down the stairs, and then he pinned me against the wall. She was crying hysterically. I said, did he do... No, no I need him in the balls and got away. I've been locked in here ever since. How did he know I wasn't here, I said, and, and we heard the elevator leaving. It makes no sense. He's a psycho, Pat sniffled. Although she was upset, we actually had a good laugh as she relived the scenario of running up and down the stairs, wrapped only in a towel, then back and forth around the furniture while he was in hot pursuit. I pictured a French maid with a feather duster, duster fleeing from the evil villain. <laughs> That's it, I don't care where we go, we've got to get out of here. I was so angry. Needless to say, we didn't meet Dr Bond in the Alps for lunch, but instead wandered into town trying to figure out what to do. I believe there are angels everywhere in life and they really are looking out for us. We hadn't gone far when I discovered a 20 franc note lying on the ground in front of me. Thank you. Then we met a couple of American GIs who were working at a US Army hospital in Stuttgart. They were driving back the next day, which happened to be New Year's Day, and said they were sure we could get work there, especially because Pat was a nurse and I'd for sure get in because I had a nice English accent. When Stanley returned from skiing, he wanted to know why we hadn't joined him for lunch. Are you kidding? I was standing in the kitchen with the blue formica table separating me from the scumbag while Pat had locked herself in the bedroom. I told him how despicable he was for pouncing on Pat, which of course he denied. We want the travel money you promised us and we're leaving tomorrow, I said. He began to resist. I've given you room and board, he started to say, but now it was my time to pounce. I called him every low-life name I could think of and threatened to report him to the medical authorities for his unethical behaviour. He soon coughed up the cash. And that night, while he and his trio of young ladies were at a nightclub bringing in the new year, Pat and I sat on that same luxurious fur-covered couch looking out at the marvellous fireworks exploding over the Swiss Alps and toasted our future with mugs of hot chocolate, laced with brandy, naturally. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to Sophia Style Radio to hear all about my next adventure. Our two American saviours were both in their 20s and quite good-looking. Randy from Maine was a character, tall, well-built and accident-prone. He'd just been skiing with a cast on his arm, gained apparently from a previous skiing trip. <laughs> he didn't seem to care. Mike was from Ohio, had a wicked grin under his brown moustache and was destined to become Pat's future husband. They were intrigued by our story of Dr. Stanley Bond. <laughs> Sounds like a first-class pimp to me, said Randy. 
Yeah, we're the stable of high-class call girls, agreed Mike, as we made our way to Stuttgart in his beaten-up Ford van. It was a glorious journey through the Swiss Alps on a beautiful sunny day. The snow was crisp and dazzling white against the blue sky. It was almost blinding, but it seemed to glow with the promise of good things to come. And on this first day of a new year, Pat and I were very excited to be on the road to another adventure with two, hopefully, decent guys. Although they hadn't fought in the Vietnam War, which was still going on in Southeast Asia, as hospital staff, Mike and Randy were often dealing with the post-traumatic stress disorder experienced by soldiers who'd been on the front lines, the so-called grunts. These young soldiers had been shipped to Germany to clean up the drug habit some of them had acquired in Vietnam. It just didn't look good to have drug-addicted soldiers arriving back in the States. At least they weren't in body bags. We had lots of laughs as we travelled through Switzerland, stopping here and there to take photos, to have bathroom breaks and eat. We actually stopped in Zurich and regaled the guys with our au pair stories. They told us more about the hospital where Mike worked in the psychiatric clinic and Randy was a lab technician. They had avoided being sent to Vietnam because of their education and professions and for the past couple of years had been stationed at the 5th General Army Hospital in Bad Cannstatt, Germany, a few miles north of Stuttgart. They told us there were a lot of civilians from different parts of the world who were working there, and we wouldn't have any problem getting jobs. Also, accommodation was provided, so we'd not only have jobs, but somewhere to live. Yeah! It was getting dark when we finally arrived in Stuttgart. The guys couldn't offer us accommodation in their barracks since girls naturally were off limits. But we'd already decided to spend the night in a youth hostel and then try and get an interview at the hospital the next day. According to Mike's map, there was a youth hostel not far from the train station. So they dropped us off in front of the hostel, wished us luck hoped to see us at the hospital, and then continued driving north towards Bad Cannstatt. Standing in front of the youth hostel, something didn't seem quite right. It was all very dark. There were no lights on, the front door was locked, and there was no response when we rang the bell and knocked on the door. It was only nine o'clock at night, and we thought it should have been open. Then our attention was drawn to a sign on the door in several languages stating that the hostel was closed for Christmas and New Year and wouldn't reopen until January the 4th. Oh dear. We looked up and down the deserted street wondering what to do next. When we were in San Maritz, we met a really nice guy from South Dakota, Dan, who treated us to Christmas dinner. But it wasn't a traditional meal. We had cheese fondue, followed by chocolate fondue for dessert. It was a real Swiss lunch. <laughs> the glorious taste and smell of the melted cheese and chocolate will stay with me forever. It was so delicious. 
and it was the best Christmas dinner I think I've ever had. Dan had done quite a bit of travelling in Europe on the cheap and said that he'd often had to sleep on a bench in the train station. So Pat and I decided that's where we'd have to spend the night. We heaved our packs onto our backs and walked across to the main street where we saw tram tracks. We knew we were close to the train station, but it was probably too far to walk. And which direction should we go? We stood at a tram stop trying to decipher the German language with no success, except I did know the word for train station. A man walked past us and I said in my basic German, Wo ist der Bahnhof, Peter? He pointed to the other side of the road. Oh, danke, I muttered as we crossed the road and waited for a tram. Within a few minutes, a three-carriage tram arrived with Bahnhof written on the front. Since we didn't have Deutschmarks, we weren't able to buy a ticket from the driver and we didn't really want to spend any money. So we hopped on the very last carriage of the tram far away from the driver, hoping it wasn't going to be a long journey. There were no other people in our carriage except for an older lady, probably in her early 70s. We sat down in front of her and she looked at us very intensely through her spectacles. Then she approached us and in English with a German accent said, Do you have a ticket? Um, Mike and Randy had warned us to be careful when travelling on the trams. They're crafty, Mike said. He explained that civilians check tickets and not uniformed conductors, as one might expect. We knew we were in big trouble, but both of us acted dumb. Tickets? Oh, we need tickets? The lady, who was tall and quite imperious, with her grey hair swept back into a neat bun, put her hand in her pocket and handed us two tickets. These are for you. Oh, we told her we couldn't pay her, and she said, not necessary. Then she said, where are you going with those heavy bags? Referring to our backpacks. We told her we were going to the Barnhof to sleep because the youth hostel was closed. Nine, 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 she exclaimed. What would your mothers think? The tram had now arrived at the train station and this lady was adamant that we were not going to be spending the night there. I will find you a place to stay, she said. We got off the train with her and as she walked ahead of us to a booth in the station that was advertising accommodation, we weren't quite sure what to do. We didn't really have enough money to spend on a hotel and still weren't sure whether we would be hired at the hospital. Within a few minutes, she came back to us. I have a room for you in a small guest house nearby, she said. Please to follow me. Um, how much will it cost? I ventured. I will pay for you, she said, marching ahead of us with great determination. We were astonished. Here was a stranger, Miss Gertrude Volter, who was willing to help us, and was another angel along our path to the unknown. There's a saying, be kind to a stranger, because this might be an angel in disguise. 
Well, we certainly weren't angels, but Miss Walter definitely was. She checked us into the guest house and promised she'd be there at 9am sharp the next day to take us for breakfast. A heavy-set and somewhat grumpy man who didn't speak English showed us to our room on the second floor and gave us a key which he indicated was also for the front door. We dropped our backpacks on the floor of the closet-sized room. Ah, oh, could eat a horse, Pat moaned. We'd intended to get something to eat at the Barnhof, but Miss Walter had sidetracked us, so back we went there in search of food. We wandered into a cafe and couldn't believe our eyes. There was South Dakota Dan sitting at a table having a beer. Oh my God, Dan! He was just as surprised to see us. What were the chances of bumping into him in Stuttgart? He had no idea we were going to be there. The last time we saw him was in St. Moritz. It was kismet. He bought us a sandwich and a drink and we told him that we had a room so he didn't need to sleep on a bench. We could all bunk in together. Okay, <laughs> you're probably thinking, ooh, a menage a trois, very sexy. But it wasn't like that. We were just travellers looking out for one another. We smuggled Dan into our room, trying to be as quiet as we could, but couldn't resist giggling as we quickly locked the door. Suddenly, there was a heavy banging on our door, and the grumpy man was yelling for us to open it. We heard words like Mann and Zimmer, which is German for room. Nein, nein, I shouted back. Dan slid under the bed to hide, and we opened the door. Nine man here, I said. Unfortunately, Dan was a very tall guy with big feet that poked out from under the bed. Dice a man, grumpy man exclaimed triumphantly. Aus, aus, out, out. Dan sheepishly scrambled from under the bed and gathered his things. Later, he said, and we tried to give him eye signals to let him know we'd let him back in later. However, grumpy German man read our minds. He put his hand out. Der Schlüssel, he demanded. We had no idea what he meant. Then he showed us a key and mimicked locking a door. He wanted us to hand over our key. Dan shrugged his shoulders as he made his way down the stairs while Grumpy Man closed our door and locked us in. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time you'll hear about kindness from yet another stranger and then my introduction to the crazy world of the Fifth General Hospital. Incredible life stories from Coventry to Hollywood by Marie Rowe. After we heard Grumpy Man walk away, we opened the window and called, Dan, maybe he could climb up to our room. It didn't look too promising, though, because it had been snowing and the surfaces were slippery. We called again, Dan, but there was no answer. We just had to hope that he'd managed to sleep in the train station. 
Both Pat and I needed to go to the bathroom to brush our teeth and to go to the toilet. How were we going to do that if the door was locked? Hmm. Even though there might be other people sleeping there, we, we didn't care. We just had to bang on the door so that our jailer would let us out. He did. And he waited until we'd done what we needed in the bathroom and locked us back in the room. It was ridiculous. We were prisoners in a guest house. The next morning, the door had been opened and we quickly got ready and made our way down the stairs. Miss Walter was standing at the bottom, looking up at us with a very grave expression on her face and shaking her finger at us. Oh dear, oh dear, what did you girls do? We explained as best we could, and instead of chiding us even more, she was very concerned for Dan's welfare. Where did the poor boy sleep, she said. We checked all around the Barnhof, but couldn't see him anywhere. Oh, the poor boy, the poor boy. Miss Walter was so worried about Dan and the fact that he would have been cold. Finally, we had to assume that he was now on his way to pastures new and we never saw him again. While we tucked into a hearty breakfast, Miss Walter asked us what our plans were. When we told her we intended to apply for work at the army hospital in Bad Konstadt, she was absolutely appalled. It's a terrible place, terrible. All those soldiers fighting, very dangerous. We couldn't imagine why she would say such a thing, especially because it was a hospital. Except we already knew Miss Walter to be a very religious person. She regularly quoted passages to us from the Bible. So we assumed she was a pacifist. Of course, we all know that religion and peace don't necessarily go hand in hand. As time went on and she and I became friends, I understood her fearful attitude towards the military. But that's a story for another time. Despite her resistance, she took us by tram to the hospital. She shuddered when she saw the soldier at the guard gate in army fatigues carrying a rifle. I will wait here for you, Miss Walter informed us. Knowing how distressed she seemed, we told her it wasn't necessary, but she was insistent. We showed our passports to the skinny, freckle-faced young soldier on the gate, who didn't seem capable of killing a fly, and asked if he would direct us to the personnel office. New blood, he said. Um, yes, we might be giving blood, I answered. He gave me a puzzled look and Pat giggled. He didn't mean it that way, Marie. As we walked toward a two-story white brick building, we passed men and women in army uniforms, white lab coats and civilian dress coming and going very busily. It really was a hive of activity and Pat and I were excited that we were hopefully going to be a part of this new scenario. 
Pat had her interview first while I sat on a chair outside the personnel office in a long corridor, nervously waiting. Then she emerged with a smile on her face. I'm in, said Pat. What do you do, ma'am? The rather robust personnel lady in a tight-fitting army uniform asked me. I'm a secretary, I replied. Great. They need a secretary in the lab to run the drug abuse program. And that was pretty much it. I was in too. We told the waiting Miss Walter our happy news, which didn't please her at all. Unfortunately, we weren't able to start working at the 5th General for another few days because we needed to register with the German authorities and gain a work permit. Of course, this meant we didn't have accommodation. Not wanting to take advantage of Miss Walter's kindness any further, Pat suggested we visit the Canadian consul in Stuttgart and maybe her parents could transfer money to her there. We explained this to Miss Walter and of course she insisted on taking us on the tram all the way to the Canadian Consul building. Before waving us goodbye and wishing us good luck, she handed me a piece of paper with her telephone number and address in case we needed help in the future. I think she was sure we wouldn't last at that terrible place. Pat explained our situation to the honorary consulate, a man in his early forties with a warm smile, adding that she'd worked for a Canadian diplomat in Zurich and she gave him his name. She told him that we were applying for work permits but wouldn't be able to start at the hospital for a few days. We didn't have money for accommodation, the youth hostel was closed and so on. She asked if the consular would be able to contact her parents so that they could send money. No, I can't do that, he said. We both looked at him with our mouths wide open and Pat's big blue eyes got bigger and bigger. What? she said. No, you can both come and stay with me and my family instead, he declared. No need to worry your parents. We couldn't believe he would do such a thing. But here we were again, being offered kindness from yet another stranger. I'm sorry to say that I've actually forgotten his name, but I certainly have never forgotten his kind gesture and the generosity of his wife, who was willing to take us in. Within a few days, we had our work permits and appeared at the 5th General Hospital with paperwork intact. We were first shown our accommodation, which was in the bachelor officer's quarters, the BOQ, a four-storey building across from the hospital. The officers were on the first and second floors and the civilians on the third and fourth. Pat and I were on the fourth floor and each had our very own sparsely furnished room next to one another and with a shared bathroom. Luxury! <laughs> there was a communal kitchen where we later got to meet other civilians from as far away as Australia and New Zealand. As a nurse, Pat was assigned to one of the wards 
while I was taken to an office in the lab on the second floor, which I would share with Sergeant Friedlander. He was funny without knowing it and was the image of the TV character Sergeant Bilko. My other office mate was a female captain, Cartwright, who was not too fond of men. She was very intimidating with a bulldog attitude and was Sergeant Friedlander's nemesis. I soon found out that the 5th General was a very untraditional American hospital and the lab was definitely a reflection of the relaxed attitude of the military workers who seemed to be merely passing time as they completed their tours of duty. If you've seen the series or film MASH, then you get the idea. Blood bank, pathology and urinalysis were some of the departments just a few doors down from my office and rock music played constantly. It was a really fun atmosphere. The first day on the job, a chubby GI in fatigues wearing John Lennon glasses arrived in the office carrying a large black plastic bag slung over his shoulder like a misplaced Santa Claus. Are you the drug lady, ma'am? He looked at me with a hopeful expression. I think I nodded. And then he dropped the bag on my, on my desk. As he did so, small plastic bottles of various honey shades of urine rolled out. Time to get to work, Sergeant Friedlander informed me. And that was the start of a whole new chapter in my life. In the next episode, you'll hear more about my unusual job and my experiences of racism. Thanks for listening. As I looked at the mountain of urine-filled plastic bottles on my desk, Sergeant Friedlander peered over his horn-rimmed glasses. See, they're all labelled with a name and unit. He went on to explain that there were several American army bases in the Stuttgart area and all military personnel had to supply urine samples. Drug addiction was a real problem with American soldiers fighting the war in Vietnam, especially as time went on and there seemed no end to the conflict. If they weren't drug addicted before they were drafted, as many were, they soon began to rely on drugs to tolerate the horrors of a war they often knew little about. Marijuana was common and easily attainable in Vietnam. But when these young, vulnerable soldiers were being arrested for using this particular drug, they began reaching for harder stuff, such as heroin, opium and LSD, in order to cope with the brutal effects of PTSD. These drugs were less detectable, but much more addictive and damaging. Six months before I acquired my new job, in an effort to deal with the drug problem and rehabilitate soldiers returning from Vietnam, President Nixon had ordered a drug urinalysis program for all military personnel. Civilians were exempt. The kind and patient Sergeant Friedlander handed me a notebook and explained that I needed to log in all names and serial numbers and then send the bottles off to an independent German lab in Larnstuhl, where the samples were tested for illicit drugs.
I then had to check the report and if there were positive results, Sergeant Friedlander contacted the army unit and the soldiers were hospitalised upstairs in the drug ward on the third floor. This was where Pat worked. These heroin addicted soldiers spent two weeks on the ward to clean up their act. Yeah, two weeks to become drug free. Now, even though I wasn't particularly savvy about drug addiction, common sense told me that it took a lot longer than 14 days to kick the habit. Every day the addicts came down to the lab to submit their urine samples. Some of them were in various stages of drug withdrawal and it was painful to see them in such distress. Each soldier had to be supervised as they peed into a plastic bottle. Thankfully, that wasn't part of my job, but it was Sergeant Friedlander's. However, he was too embarrassed and humiliated to stand watching each soldier. So he looked away, which gave the GIs an opportunity to substitute someone else's urine. I later learned that an orderly on the drug ward, Carter, who was often accompanied the soldiers into the lab, was not only providing the addicts with his urine, but also supplying them with the drugs they needed for a price, naturally. Consequently, the drug abuse program was a complete farce and an exercise in futility, as was the therapy group I was part of later. Most narcotics were pretty plentiful in Germany and hashish or hash was particularly popular among the GIs. Want to smoke a bowl? was a frequent refrain. I didn't have a clue what that meant. But a bowl actually meant pipe. But instead of smoking tobacco, hash was preferred, which apparently was about three times stronger than marijuana. A week or so after Pat and I had settled into our rooms, we decided to cook a meal in our communal kitchen for Randy and Mike to repay them for giving us a lift and changing our lives. After the meal, they all tried their hardest to get me to smoke a bowl of hash. I'd never smoked, never smoked a cigarette, hated it. And even though I did try to smoke the hash, my lungs hurt so much I knew it just wasn't worth it. What we having for dessert? Randy asked. Strawberry cheesecake, I told him. He jumped up. I'll get it. A couple of minutes later, he returned with a big piece of cheesecake on a plate. Eat that and see what happens. I tentatively took a bite and instead of the creamy texture I expected, it was gritty. That was the hash that Randy had mixed into the dessert. It wasn't the most pleasant of tastes, but I was encouraged to persevere and I ate most of it. Randy, Mike and Pat sat there looking at me, waiting for me to react. But nothing happened for about half an hour. <laughs> then it kicked in and I was saying, apparently, the silliest things. I do remember something about having a chicken on my head. <laughs> anyway, whatever I said made everyone roll around laughing. It certainly was a fun experience, 
but I didn't intend to make a habit of it. Captain Cartwright walked into the office just as the phone rang. I picked it up. Good morning, laboratory service, can I help you? Is this the lab? A female voice said. Yes. Is the captain there? Who's calling? Woody. I handed the phone to Cartwright and said, it's Woody for you. She smirked at me and guffawed into the phone. Yes, yeah, she sure is a marble mouth. Then she laughed out loud. From then on, I was always called Marble Mouth by Cartwright and her sidekick Woody, a small, stick-thin, feisty woman who worked at the other end of the corridor in the chemistry lab alongside Randy. They actually liked my English accent, but really enjoyed hearing me pronounce laboratory. I tried saying it with an American accent, laboratory, but it sounded like lavatory to me. <laughs> so I decided to just say lab to make it easy for everyone. At lunchtime, Pat came down to meet me in the lab and Randy, still wearing a cast on his arm, took us over to the mess hall, a huge, crowded and noisy American-style cafeteria filled with military personnel and civilians. As I moved along the lunch line, my eyes locked with those of a gorgeous man with skin like polished ebony as he dropped a canister of chilli into a steam tray. He then turned and walked back into the kitchen. As we slowly shuffled along the line towards the desserts, I was just about to pick up a piece of apple pie when the gorgeous man was there again, handing me a slice of carrot cake. This is better, he said. As our hands touched, I felt as if I'd been struck by lightning. Then he smiled and I almost melted. Okay, I know, it all sounds very much like a Harlequin romance novel and apologies for the cliches. But honestly, it was love at first sight with Dave, who was one of the mess hall cooks. Even though I glimpsed him from time to time when I went to lunch with a gang from the lab, we never spoke not until the following Saturday. This was when Pat and I and our new friends Therese from Ireland and Catherine from Liverpool went to the NCO club with a few of the guys. The club was on the hospital grounds and on Saturdays there was usually a band or if not a DJ playing music. As you can imagine, we were never short of male company and I have to say how polite they all were. For instance, whenever one of the girls got up from the table to go to the bathroom, all the men rose in unison, almost as if they were going with us. It was cute. It didn't occur to me until later, but we were all white at our table, Caucasian. And across the other side of the room was a table where all of the guys were black, including Dave. My stomach did a flip when I saw him. The band was on a break and an Al Green song was playing, Let's Stay Together. Dave sauntered over to our table and asked me to dance and I was thrilled. We had a great time dancing together and then eventually he took me back to the table. And when I sat down, 
I noticed that the guys were very quiet. Later, as my relationship with Dave developed and I became friendly with other black military, including the race relations officer and his family, I seemed to have got myself a reputation of being a lover of the black race, although that wasn't quite how they expressed it. I didn't understand. These were all Americans in the army and some had fought alongside one another in Vietnam. As someone once put it, the only colour in the jungle is green. This was my first introduction to racism in the military, but not my last. Next time you'll hear more about antics in the lab and the insane drug therapy group. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed our podcast show from Coventry to Hollywood, narrated by Marie Rowe. Don't forget to tune in next Sunday from 8 p.m.